in the church I was raised in, uh, we would all, the, the pastor would always say something like this. He would say, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. So I love that tradition to start an Easter sermon. Now, just as a heads up, if you've got small kids in the room, uh, you may want to cover their ears for a second if they're pretty excited about a jolly man wears a red suit, big black boots, and hangs out with reindeer, okay? So cover the ears if, if I'm going to have a massive spoiler, okay? Okay, so here's the deal. Santa doesn't exist, okay? And I think you guys know that. And my kids, my kids at an early age discovered that. And so much so that they were kind of like anybody who, you know, they were more than willing to, to pop that, that bubble, you know, for their friends. And it's like, no, you need to calm down and let them handle that with their own family and their own way. But it's kind of like, Santa, whatever. But the tooth fairy, on the other hand, that was serious business. Like the tooth fairy was as real as it gets. And one of my favorite moments in parenting, I'm so, I went back on this um, blog that we used to have for the kids where we would just post things for the sake of memories, and I was so glad that I found this picture. This is a picture that my oldest wrote as a thank you note to the tooth fairy. And he was probably seven at the time. And it says, th- for those of you who can't see it, it says, thank you for the 50 cents, C-E-N-S, we were still in process on the spelling at that point. And then uh, Tooth Fairy, Love Taylor. And then behind there, you can't really see it unless you're up close, but these, he attached like a, a reciprocation of thanks. For the 50 cents, he attached some pixie sticks from his precious little heart to bless the, the Tooth Fairy. And so um, I always remember that the Tooth Fairy was, a, was the real deal. And, and here's the thing with the Tooth Fairy. It's a nice sentiment, right? Nice sentiment. And the kids get excited, get a little money, exchange for a tooth. But for many of us, that's how we think about Easter. This whole idea of the God-man, Jesus Christ, coming to earth, dying for sin and rising from the dead is on the same level as Santa, unicorns, tooth fairy. It's a nice sentiment that we can get excited about, but of course it's not really real, right? Right? And today I want to address this because this is the central claim of the Christian worldview. This is the central claim of Christianity. Easter stands or falls. Now, is it just wishful thinking? Is it just wishful thinking? Something that maybe Christians fabricate to, to numb the pain. We've got we to gotta figure out how to cope in this life. And so we've got to come up with some crazy story that helps us feel better about some wish projection under the sky of a heavenly father, a nice story that makes us feel sentimental but has no real historical significance for real rational people. Is that what this is? Well, the first thing I want to say is that central to the Bible and what it teaches is that Easter is a make-or-break event. All of Christianity stands or falls based on Easter. And here's what the Bible says. This is found in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. And this is a guy named Paul writing to a church in a city in the Near East uh, called Corinth. 
And he writes this to them because some of them were doubting as well. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. So he's saying, this has been my message. Christ is risen from the dead. But whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here's what's at stake. This is the central claim of Christianity. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Let me just explain that last phrase. You are still in your sins. See, the, the, the essential message of Christianity is this, that there is a God and we are not it. And we who are not God have deficiencies and limitations. We're creatures and we sin. What that means is we fall short of God's perfect standard that he calls all of us too, because he is holy and he can't just sweep sin under the rug. Any good just judge knows that we have to deal with sin. We can't just say no big deal. So God looks at our sin and says, man, that's a big deal. But instead of just all condemning us, he came in Jesus, the God man to save us so that we don't have to bear the penalty, which is death of our sin. And Jesus came 2,000 years ago in space, time, and history and laid down his life on a cross, a bloody, horrible death that symbolizes that sin is that big of a deal, that it deserves that kind of a punishment. But instead of us on that cross, it was Jesus on that cross in our place. And he exchanged with us. He became the substitute. He bore the sin that we have, and we took on his perfection he is the grand substitute so that all who believe and trust in him can know that their sins are forgiven and they have eternal life. And they don't have to be on this treadmill of good deeds trying to earn, climb this ladder of good deeds trying to earn God's favor. No, no, Jesus came and earned it for us. And he just simply wants to give it to anyone who would come and trust in him and treasure him as Lord of all and that it's all true. And here's the, the big exclamation point to that message that message is called the gospel. Here's the exclamation point. The resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. That says this whole message is true. That says that this is the real deal. You can trust it. You can treasure it because Jesus is no longer in the grave. And thus, you're not still in your sins if you trust and believe in Jesus. And Paul's whole point here is that message is bunk if Jesus is still in the grave. What I just articulated, the gospel, it's worthless if Jesus is still in the grave and we're all still in our sins and we're all face the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, for falling short of the glory of God. And Paul's saying, no, 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 It all stands or falls on resurrection. This gospel message all stands or falls on resurrection of Jesus. The foundation of the Christian worldview is the resurrection of Jesus. It's kind of like a game of Jenga. Anybody, any of you guys play Jenga? Anybody know what Jenga is? 
All right, we're going to play a little game of Jenga, and, and um, this is not rhetorical, okay? Uh, who wants to play me in Jenga? Anybody? Oh, gosh, I can't mess up my illustration. All right, so who wants to play me in Jenga? Okay, come on up, Becky. Becky is not afraid. I like that. Um, now, Becky, here's the deal. This is just a sermon illustration, and so your only job is to, you can't screw up, okay? <laughs> so no pressure. All right, so you guys know how Jenga works? Anybody not know how Jenga works? Raise your hand. Don't be, don't be shy. All right, so you guys are up to speed on the kids' games. Good. So um, I'm going to go first, and I'm going to take, let's see, i got to find a good one or my sermon illustration is going to not work. Um, we'll go right there. So you can only use one hand. Oh, all right, Becky, you're up. Just don't screw it up. Oh, she's got it. Okay. So this is Christianity, okay? This tower is Christianity. And what Paul is saying is that this piece right here is the resurrection. So what happens when I pull this piece out? Christianity, it's done. This is resurrection, okay? And that's his point. If, if this piece gets pulled out, it's all done. It's all over. And that's what he wants us to see. Becky, thank you very much. Give it up for her. All right, we've got to do a little cleanup here. So that's the point. Now, I want you guys to remember that illustration, and I think you will. Every time you see Jenga now, in the future, you're going to think Easter, you're going to think resurrection, you're going to think the foundation of the Christian worldview is the resurrection, okay? So today, I want to speak to the head and the heart. I want to speak to the head and the heart. I want to speak to the head and the heart. And I want to speak to a, a, a diverse group here. Some of you in this room are believers. You trust it. You believe it. But maybe you're lacking a foundation, and you're not really sure why. Some of you in this room um, are skeptical, and you might think Jesus is cool, sort of, a good moral teacher, but resurrection, miracles, all that deal, I, I can't, I don't think I can have it. And some of you might be way on the other side, and you just, you just don't believe. You're just here because your family pressured you into it or whatever. It's traditional, okay? But I want to speak to everybody in the room um, let's start with the, the head, the intellect, the mind. And I want to give you a few historical, intellectual reasons why believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus is well-founded. It's reasonable. It's worthy to be trusted and should be taken very seriously. And I think I would go so far as to say, I would make this bold claim that not believing in the resurrection, I think, takes more faith than actually believing in it. And I think if you are a believer this morning, these are just reasons that can gird up your strength and your faith in the truth of it. And if you're not, these are just some great reasons to consider. These are some great things to keep in mind. I think, so in that sense, I think there's a win here for everyone. There, there, these, these are reasons I didn't come up with on my own. They've been around a long time. And I'm just simply recounting these, not as original to me, but as well-known facts that have been around a long time. So let's start right here. These five points on the screen, they are all truths that are accepted by Christians 
and non-Christian scholars alike, atheistic scholars alike, okay? No one debates these things, okay? This is just a given. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. The disciples were convinced that he rose from the dead. Number three, Paul, a sworn enemy of Christianity, became a Christian. Jesus' skeptical brother, James, also became a Christian. And number five, the tomb was empty and no one ever found the body, okay? These are just givens of history. No one debates these, or very, 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 very few, a tiny minority would debate these, but almost everybody who studied these things, no one debates these. So these alone demand an explanation. These alone demand an explanation. Because if we can't answer this, we got this gaping hole in Christian history. Massive unsolved mystery, all right? So what happened? Now, there's a lot of different explanations for what happened. The first one we might call the conspiracy theory, okay? The conspiracy theory. Another way to say that is just a big, massive prank, a big, massive hoax, okay? Now, when I was in college, I lived on the third floor of Shoal Hall my freshman year at the University of Northern Iowa. And on the third floor of Shoal Hall at the University of Northern Iowa, we were a bunch of nuts guys that love to play pranks, all right? And some of our favorite pranks were this one. You go take a shower in, like, the shower room, you know, on, on the dorm floor, and, you're, and, you know, your, your dorm room is a few, you know, doors down. And your buddies come in and take all your clothes and your towel. And then you're faced with a situation, a very uncomfortable situation. And it even gets worse when they lock your door to your dorm room. Very uncomfortable. That's, that's a hard one to solve. The other one uh, would be you take the garbage can, fill it with water, and you lean it up against the door. And then you just knock on the door and they open the door and it all spills into their room. Uh, another one of the favorites was taking all, this was, this was so fun. We took all the dorm furniture from the, 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 the dorm lounge, you know, the lounge where people would study. And we played this big game of Tetris in one of our buddies' rooms where we put all of the furniture stacked into his tiny little dorm room. So then when he opens the door, it's just like this wall of massive furniture. Okay? Um, then the other one that always comes to mind is my roommate was a huge fan of the Disney soundtracks, you know, like Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Lion King. So my, my, my buddy that lived across the hall, he did this so many times. It was so annoying. My, other, my roommate who loved the soundtracks would be gone, and I'd be in the room, I'd run off and I would take a shower. He would go into our room. You'd think we would lock our doors, but we just would forget. And he would go into our room and he would take one of those Disney soundtracks and put it on the stereo and just crank it full blast. And then he would leave and just leave our door open like we're here like partying to the, to the Disney soundtrack. And like people are walking by like, who are these guys? Like, what are they doing? And then I come back from the shower and it's just like, oh my gosh. So Pranks have a, have a role in my history, especially in college and, and our culture. You know, you get on YouTube and you'll see video after video of these things. Our culture also loves a good, salacious conspiracy theory. I don't know if you guys have watched any, like, 9-11 conspiracy documentaries. You know, I don't believe that stuff for a second, but it was entertaining. You know, on Netflix, there's lots of them. You know, it kept my attention for a couple hours. 
You know, people still believe they've been abducted by aliens. They believe Elvis is still alive. They believe that Tupac is still alive, okay? And a lot of people think that this whole resurrection deal is just on that same level. It's just a massive hoax. Just a massive 2,000-year-old conspiracy theory. And here's what happened. The disciples stole the body and pulled it off. And they told this huge lie, and they pulled the biggest historical hoax of all time. But here's what you have to believe to believe that. This is why I might say it would take more faith to believe that than to actually believe the resurrection of Jesus. You've got these spineless, cowardly, fearful, cowering disciples that before Jesus is crucified, they scatter and they run for their lives. And you got to believe that that group of guys overpowered two Roman guards who were trained killers. You know, the Roman Empire, they were the, the, the biggest killing, dominating, imperialistic machine that the world's ever seen. These guys are trained in that school of military thought to defend everything at the cost of their life. So when their orders are, anybody touches this tomb, you die. That's what they would have heard. And that's what happened. You've got Roman guards guarding the tomb. So these cowardly disciples somehow overpower them. Then they move away this huge stone, steal the body, and then do something with the body, and then purport this lie. They tell this lie over and over and over again about Jesus and him rising from the dead. But that makes no sense. And here's why. People don't willingly die for things they know for a fact are not true. And they don't do it in mass. Now, let me clarify what I mean. Because all of Jesus' first disciples did this, except for one. He didn't die a martyr's death, but 11 of them did. Okay? People don't willingly die for things they know for a fact are not true, and they don't do it in mass. Now, listen to this close. People die for lies all the time, right? People die for lies all the time. But, but those people are not in a position to know for sure if what they're dying for is truly true or not. Here's what I mean. Consider the, the tragic, horrific bombing in Brussels just a few days ago. Those men believed what, that they were dying for the truth, right? That they're going to, you know... In their skewed vision of Islam, they are believing that they're going to receive some pornographic paradise with 70 wives or whatever for perpetuating this horrific crime in the name of Allah. But here's the, here's the deal. They're not in a position to know if that promise is going to come true or not until they die, Right? Their death is going to tell them whether that promise that they're believing in by faith will deliver or not. They have to die to find out if what they say is true is actually true. So in this sense, they're more than willing to die for a lie. But here's the difference. The disciples didn't have to die to find out if what they said was true was actually true. The disciples of Jesus are radically different. In this sense, there was, there was no faith involved. It's just a fact. 
either Jesus rose from the dead and they saw him and they interacted with him and they ate with him and they touched his body or they didn't. And they were in a position to know because they're still alive, right? Either Jesus walked with them after his death or he didn't. And they didn't have to die to figure that out. You feel the difference? Feel that difference between the Brussels bombers and Jesus' disciples? And they all died a bloody martyr's death claiming that it was true. And none of them ever recanted. So here's the point. They had zero to gain other than pain and suffering in this life by continuing to testify to Jesus' resurrection if it was all false and they knew for a fact that it was false. So that's the conspiracy theory. That's the hoax theory and why it doesn't work out. Secondly, you've got the hallucination theory. Now, I don't know if any of you have had kids with high fevers, and sometimes if a fever gets really high, kids will start to hallucinate. Anybody relate to that? Or maybe that's happened to you when you were little. Um, people hallucinate all the time if they trip acid. I've got friends that do that or have done that. My, um, people hallucinate when they're on heavy drugs in the hospital, pain meds. My dad, last year, he was toward the end of his fight with cancer, and he was on some heavy pain meds, and he was telling crazy stories about things that were happening to him that we knew for a fact couldn't be possible. And he's on these heavy pain meds. But, but he, it was so real to him, to the point where he was offended when we didn't believe him. But the claim here is that these disciples, these first followers of Jesus, they had hallucinations in mass. They all because they were so stressed out, they worked themselves up into this frenzy, their leader was dead, and they didn't know what to do, and they just wished it so bad that they all kind of collectively hallucinated this thing, and, and it wasn't really real, but to them it was real. And so they had these mass hallucinations, and they were willing to lay down their life for this truth that they thought they believed. But psychologists have already debunked this, and this is just modern Science that hallucinations don't work that way. Hallucinations don't happen in mass at the same time with the exact same testimony. And Jesus, is, uh, the Bible says that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And Paul's writing to people that were reading that, that claim and those people were still alive. They could just go and ask them. And in addition, this doesn't address whatever happened to the body. Whatever happened to the body. So the hallucination theory doesn't work. And then thirdly, what's often said, and this is much more broad-ranging, but this is also very important as we, as we address the mind, is this claim that, that science has proved that the supernatural can't happen or that science has proven that miracles don't exist. And this is just simply a gross misunderstanding of how science functions. And, and it shouldn't be accepted, it shouldn't be Repeated. It's simply a confusion of categories. It'd be like you're watching the football game and you got commercials, and one of the commercials is the football player in the commercial who's selling razors. And he's saying, This razor that I use gives me the cleanest shave. It's the best. Now, you could believe that he knows everything about razor technology. Maybe he has a PhD in razor technology or something. You could believe that if you want. But that probably isn't very reasonable because he's a football player. And he's, he doesn't have a PhD in razors. He's got a PhD in football. 
And so to believe that he really knows what he's talking about, you know, is like, well, he's probably just getting paid to sell, sell this razor, right? It's a category confusion. Football players don't have expertise in razors. Guys that make razors do. And there's a difference here in category. You know what I'm saying? One doesn't really probably have anything to do with the other. Now, I'm no scientist, but I know this. Science deals exclusively with things that happen naturally. Things that take place in the normal, natural world. Physical stuff, material processes, physical matter. And it simply studies and reports on what is, okay? It doesn't create anything. It simply observes and reports on what is already there and repeatable and observable. It makes no claim whatsoever on what isn't or what can't happen. It can't say that anything is necessarily impossible. It can only say what is probable based on what has been previously observed. Here's another way to say it. Consider this quote. Science depends upon observation and replication. Miracles such as the incarnation, that Jesus became a human being, God became flesh, Christ's virgin birth, and the resurrection are by, by their very nature unprecedented events. No one can replicate these events in a laboratory. Hence, science simply cannot be the judge and jury as to whether or not these events occurred. And here's, here's the money sentence. The, the scientific method is useful for studying nature, but not supernature. See, by definition, science deals with what has happened. It, can, it can't tell you something can't happen. It can't tell you anything about the supernatural because the supernatural is out of science's area of expertise. Science deals with the natural and the regular, the repeatable. Supernatural is like a resurrection from the dead, is by definition supernatural and very, very, very irregular. So science doesn't deal with this. Science certainly has not proved anything about Jesus' resurrection or not. It honestly has nothing to say about the supernatural. I know that's a little philosophical and such, but I think it's very important for us to interact with this line of thinking, especially in our culture today. So, Conspiracy theory doesn't work. Hallucination theory doesn't work. Science ruling out resurrection doesn't work. On the positive side, let me just rattle off the evidence. You got the transformation of these disciples. How do you explain that from these quivering, fearful, cowardly men to the most raging, bold, winsome evangelists that don't care if you kill them? But this deal is true. How did that happen? It's just a fact of history. You've got the Roman guards being removed. How does that happen? You've got the stone being rolled away. How does that happen? You've got the conversion of all these people that had zero to gain. You've got no body ever being found. Just produce a body and Christianity is over. Game over. You've got the existence of the Christian church that has no reason to spring up as the most explosive, explosive power of evangelism 2,000 years ago where you see conversion after conversion after conversion. How do you explain that if it wasn't based on something very, very unique? And you've got so many witnesses with zero to gain. This quote sums it up really well. Let's read this. I'll read it too. Considering the internal and external arguments for the resurrection of Christ, 
I don't ask anyone to look to one of these lines of evidence alone, but to consider the cumulative case. It's very impressive. If the resurrection indeed occurred, it would be hard to expect more evidence. In fact, what we would expect is exactly what we have. Of course, alternatives to each one of these could be and have been offered. Alternatives to many well-established historical events have been offered as well, including the Holocaust. People, some people still deny that, I, that it happened. The landing on the moon, people deny that it happened. And the death of Elvis, people say he's still alive, right? However, in most cases, the alternatives go against the obvious. In the end, all alternative explanations for the resurrection, while possible, are not probable and take a greater leap of faith than believing that Christ rose from the grave. The simplest explanation is always the best. The simplest explanation to the historic data here is that Christ did rise from the grave. Those who deny the resurrection do so not on the basis of the evidence, but because they have other presuppositions that won't allow them to believe. The historical evidence is simply too strong. I believe that any objective historian must look to the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and conclude that he is indeed risen. So let that be an encouragement to those of you that already believe. It's well-founded. And those that maybe are skeptical, there's so much here to consider. There's so much here to consider. I would just plead with you not to be apathetic. This is what I say to my non-Christian friends all all the time. If you're going to reject Christianity, at least know for certain the details of what you're rejecting. At least be well-informed in your rejection and really consider it and think it through. But along those lines, that's the mental side. That's the intellectual side. That's the historical side. But I also want to speak to this room, like I speak to my non-Christian friends, to the heart side. To the heart side. And if you're skeptical here this morning, I wonder if the main issue is this. I wonder if it's one of fear. I wonder if it's one of fear. And at this point, it's less an issue of the intellect and more issue of the will and the heart and the desires. For many, the issue is not that they can't believe, but that they won't believe. Here's what I mean. Let me tell you a story from Jesus' life that clearly illustrates this. This is found in the fourth book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John in chapter 11. And Jesus had a really good friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus one day got really sick and he died. And some of Jesus's and Lazarus's friends came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why were you not here? See, Jesus was far away when Lazarus died. And they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why were you not here? If you would have been here, you could have healed him and spared us all, all the sorrow and all this grief. And Jesus said, the reason why Lazarus died is so that you could see my glory. You could see and believe that I am who I said I am, that I am God himself come to this earth to save. And so he comes to Lazarus' tomb. And Lazarus has been dead for a few days, so much so that people say, Jesus, are you really going to attempt to do this? I mean, he's been dead all these days, and, and he's, yeah, he's, he's going to be like rot, a rotting corpse. And the, this is just 
too crazy. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? And he has the audacity to stand there and say, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Lazarus gets out of that tomb and walks out to the astonishment of everyone. And the Bible says that in light of this, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. What would you think? What would you do? The Bible says that in light of this, many believed and trusted and treasured Jesus as Savior, and they turned and they followed him. But there were others, these guys named Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the super religious people that thought that they had it all together, and they believed that they could climb a ladder of good deeds and clean themselves up enough so that God would accept them. And they weren't desperate for the grace and the mercy of God. All they thought was, I don't need grace and mercy because I've got it all together. I'm super religious. What do I need a Savior for? I can save myself through all these things that I do, and I can prove to God that I'm worthy of him saving me. Really, I'm putting God in my debt because of all the good deeds. This ladder, like, check me out. God, look at how high I can climb the ladder. That's how the Pharisees thought about themselves. And Jesus came to them and said, guys, it doesn't work that way. I am the ladder. I am the ladder. I'm the only one that can climb that ladder of good deeds. I'm the only one that's perfectly perfect. You guys aren't. And in fact, that's why you need me, because I'm willing to lay down my life for you to save you if you're willing to admit that you need a Savior, if you're willing to admit that you can't clean yourself up enough. And these guys, Pharisees, these super religious folks, they hated that. They hated that message of Jesus. And so check out what the Bible says about their response to this amazing Lazarus event, this resurrection. This is what it says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, that was Jesus' friend who pleaded with him to save Lazarus before he had died. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? Take note of their response. This is important. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now notice their response to the supernatural. It wasn't one of the intellect. The intellect was settled. They didn't sit there and say, well, science has disproved that the supernatural is impossible, so we have to go find an explanation. There must be a hoax here. There must be a conspiracy. No, 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 that's not what they say. The mind had been satisfied. What do they say? They say, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. What that means is, translation, we believe that it happened. Of course it happened. But it's not just about the mind. It's that they were fearful. Jesus posed a threat. See that? If we continue to let this message get out, they essentially say, what's going to happen to us? The Romans are going to come, and they're going to take our place and our nation. We got a lot at stake here. Jesus and all this stuff that he's doing is a threat. It's a threat to our power, to our authority. So notice this isn't an issue of the mind. For them, this is an issue of the will. They believed in their mind, but they 
hated it in their heart. So consider the sentence that I already quoted. Those who deny the resurrection do so not on the basis of the evidence, but because they have other presuppositions. What that means is just pre-held beliefs that won't allow them to believe, that won't allow them to believe. Now, some of you might say, I'm not like a Pharisee. I don't hate Jesus. I don't know many people that would say that. But let's just do a thought experiment real quick as we close. For those of you in this room that might be cautiously skeptical about all of these things, consider this approach. Let's just assume for a second. Just play the, the, the thought game with me. Go, go down this road of this thought experiment with me. Consider just for a second that it's all true. And just pretend, if you're skeptical, just pretend that it's all true, that it really happened. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, like how does that make you feel? I'm not asking you what you think, though that is extremely important. But I'm just asking you right now, how does that make you feel if you had to admit that it is true? How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel backed into a corner? Does it make you feel maybe like there's a threat to your personal autonomy? That if I really admit that there's a Lord outside of myself, then that's going to call me to acknowledge that person as Lord, and that makes me uncomfortable because I want to be Lord. Does it, make you, does it make you feel like there's a threat to your freedom? Like, does, does Christianity feel like a straitjacket, maybe, if we admit that Jesus is who he said he was? That maybe there's implications then for my life that make me very uncomfortable. Like, it's going to be constraining. Like, there's all this fun I want to have. There's all this stuff that I want to accomplish that, that, that I feel like Jesus is going to take away from me. Or, or no pleasure, no freedom. That's why I say that maybe this is an issue of fear. I want to close with a quote from Tim Keller that I think just sums up the good news of Christianity, that this really is good news. And I just commend it to all of you, believers and unbelievers alike. Believer, be encouraged. Skeptic, maybe allow yourself to be challenged. Here's what Tim Keller writes. At first sight, then, a relationship with God seems inherently dehumanizing. Surely it will have to be one way, God's way. God, the divine being, has all the power. I must adjust to God. There's no way God could adjust to and serve me. While this may be true in other forms of religion and belief in God, it is not true in Christianity. In the most radical way, God has adjusted to us in his incarnation, meaning him coming to earth to save and atonement. Atonement just simply means that I can't save myself. I need someone as a substitute to pay the price for my sin that I can't pay because I'm imperfect. But Jesus said, as the perfect one, he's, he'll come and bear the wrath of God on my behalf, in my place. That's what atonement means. As a free gift that I can't earn, just simply given to me when I treasure and trust him and follow him. In Jesus Christ, he, Jesus, became a limited human being, vulnerable to suffering and death, 
on the cross, he submitted to our condition as sinners and died in our place to forgive us. In the most profound way, God has said to us in Christ, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I'll serve you, though it means a sacrifice for me. A friend of C.S. Lewis was once asked, Is it easy to love God? And he replied, It is easy to those who do it. And that is not a paradoxical, as paradoxical as it sounds. When you fall deeply in love, you want to please the beloved. You don't wait for the person to ask you to do something for them. You eagerly research and learn every little thing that brings them pleasure. Then you get it for them, even if it costs you money or great inconvenience. Your wish is my command, you feel, and it doesn't feel oppressive at all. From the outside, bemused friends may think she's leading him around by the nose, but from the inside, it feels like heaven. For a Christian, it's the same with Jesus. The love of Christ constrains. And once you realize how Jesus changed for you and gave himself for you, you aren't afraid of giving up your freedom and therefore finding your freedom in him. Let's pray. Father, as we address the hearts and the head this morning, I pray that believers here would be massively encouraged and those that don't yet believe would believe by the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.